I'm uh, Bill Reimer. I'm now retired. I've been retired for, I guess, three or four years now. I have been doing work on rural issues, rural communities for, oh, I guess about 30 plus years, maybe 40 now. I, I, it's easy to lose track of, you know, a decade here or there at my age. I am Boyan Fierst, and you are listening to Rural Roots. My guest this week is Bill Reimer. If there were such a thing as a rural council of the wise, Bill Reimer would have a seat on it. Heck, he'd probably be the chair. He has made it his business to learn as much as he can about rural lives in Canada and around the world. We spoke in his office at Concordia University in Montreal. He recently retired, so of course he has a bit more freedom to continue doing what he's always done, bringing rural scholars together and exploring rural issues. Today, he is directing Rural Policy Learning Commons International Partnership with scholars from nine countries. So he seemed like a good person to ask about the changes that happened and are still happening to rural Canada. The sort of major driver in that whole process, in certainly in the Canadian context, has been urbanization. We've just continued to urbanize, continued to urbanize. What's interesting is the rural population has remained about the same in terms of numbers, but the population in the city has grown so much that that all the energy and in, uh, attention and resources and so on get focused on, on urban. So this has ended up having some fairly significant impacts in, in rural areas. Rural areas that are close to urban centers are doing relatively well because they are in in a sense the the shadow of those urban centers and people from more remote regions are coming to those nearby uh, areas in in the uh, near near to cities um, you'll have pockets of growth in remote areas like the Banffs and the and the um, Fort Mur- McMurray's and so on, things like that. But in general, the movement has been away from the very remote to the urban adjacent, as we call it, uh, to to that area. So those are the kind of major trends that have been changing what's happening in rural areas. The mechanization, if we're, if we're talking like 60 or 70 years, the mechanization is another huge impact. We're producing more than we've ever produced before in terms of food and resources, but we're doing it with fewer people. And, and so what it means is that, is that you have a, a kind of a hollowing out of those resource-based communities, the regions that where we've been the hewers of, of wood and drawers of water and so on, and we can just export. Uh, and that's the way we've decided to organize our economy is we will export this stuff and we'll use that, the returns from the exporting to buy our iPads and our clothes and so on and so forth, so that we're if you look at the balance of trade, we're in a situation where we're paying for all of these, including our food to a large extent, uh, we're paying for all of these consumer goods 
by shipping off our timber and our fish and our um, grain and, and minerals and, and energy, for example. So, so now that, that means then that community is, is no, so, not so important from a broad economic point of view because you don't need a lot of people in order to support that commodity type of economy. You hear this in terms of the way in which the rationales are all about, well, if a community can't support itself economically, and that's treated as economic, then then it should die or it should decrease or let's move, you know, given the Newfoundland, you're familiar with the, with how that <laughs> happens in a Newfoundland context. So, so the arguments have been primarily economic based and the demography and the way in which we've organized our economy means that we don't need so many people and as a result you have uh, less um, attention given to say the operation of the community itself or those other services that it provides or the stewardship and and all of those other features that go into you know, a, a reasonably well-functioning uh, rural economy. So it's been a huge shift in terms of government policies because the attention has been uh, away from community development or community as, as, a, as a package and more towards economic development and communities then survive insofar as they can fit the economic development mold. And it means, for example, the diminishing of services in areas because you've got fewer people, uh, which in turn then starts to accentuate the, the out-migration in those areas. It means in some rural areas the, the overpopulation, the, the people are coming in and so they're, they're dealing with a, a level of mobility that they've never faced before. Uh, how do you integrate these people? And if they're all commuters anyway, you know, they're all emptying out the small community because they're heading off to the the regional centers, that's a very different kind of a community than if you have one where people are living and working in the same place. So those those old models tied to a lower level of mobility and a larger sedentary population no longer work. So you get in the 19... 70s and 80s, a huge shift in emphasis to uh, how do we help communities to become economically viable on their own? We don't, we don't want the sort of Norwegian model, for example, where they support communities from ex externally because communities are important to have there they in Canada we say if you're not economically viable on your own then you don't you don't need to be there in various forms in Canada we tend to treat our rural regions as if they were a giant ATM machine you punch in your pin and make a withdrawal instead of cash the rural regions kept providing timber energy, labor, fish, food, or you name it. That's not the case in other parts of the world. Researchers like Bill Reimer, with rich international experience, can help us understand other options out there. Options such as Norwegian model of rural development. 
I have, okay, I have a description of it and I have my own fantasy about why it's there, okay? When I went to the to Norway, what was really interesting is here we would go to these communities, you know, built on the side of a hill. And, and here you have farms in these places where in Canada we say, what are they thinking? Why are they farming a hillside? You know, it just doesn't make sense. So they got to layer all this stuff, they're growing strawberries and so on. So I'm, my questions are all about how, how do you survive? Well, one of the ways they survive is that the, the federal government, the, the country government says those, con those communities are important, not as a simple, in a simple economic way, but socially and as a security issue. And I'm thinking, oh, how does that work? Well, then I look, I, I travel around, and I'm seeing everywhere you go, you have this monument. Norway, by the way, in the Second World War, never surrendered, okay? It was one of the few European countries that never surrendered. Well, when the, when the Germans left, they burned everything. I mean, they were really annoyed at, at them, okay? Well, all of these monuments are saying, we'll never let this happen again. And so there's a whole bunch of the emphasis on the preservation of these remote communities and communities in general that is tied to their strategy in terms of protecting them themselves nationally. Now, to me in Canada, I had never thought of that element of community development, right? So I'm starting, and here's where my fantasy, whatever, I don't know. I'm starting to think, look, you've got a whole generation of people who went through that, who saw the value of preserving those communities, and they're willing to pay for it. So there is this greater transfer of funds to communities in relatively remote areas, communities that from a strict economic point of view would not be viable, but we're saying we want them there. They provide services, they provide, they support, uh, uh, you know, populations that if they all came to the city, we would be burdened with, right? Uh, they are excellent places to raise children. Oh, and by the way, they are s supporting our security, right? That's, that, like I say, that's uh, a very brief description of an outsider. Uh, it raises, for me, some interesting questions. I'm saying, hmm, the people, the generation who went through the war and therefore have that commitment, what's going to happen now? They're, no, they're dying off. You've got a higher mobility. You've got people coming in who don't have that. Will that sensitivity, will that willingness to say, hey, I'll put a little bit of our tax money to preserve those, will that no longer be an issue? To me, that's an interesting thing that, you know, the next generation of researchers will hopefully take a look at and see what uh, might come of it. It's interesting because within the Canadian context, we don't have anything approaching that. Quebec is maybe the closest, yeah. at one point was the closest to it, where they recognize that rurality has an intrinsic value as shaping what it means to be a Quebecer. That's correct, yeah. That's certainly not the case in the other provinces, except you can see it in tourism ads. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, rurality is sold as a 
tourism commodity. Yes, that's right. Why is that? What does it have to do with the way Canada was settled and the rural areas have been seen as a resource? Yeah, I, I would I would say you to to sort of get an explanation, it's gonna be a whole bunch of things. But some of the dominant themes are, well, we settled so much of our country to to trade. I mean, initially coming, you know, from Europe and 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 using the the fish, you know, or or later the wood or the butter, the dairy, you know, all of these things were that Canada was seen and and to some extent North America in general until the American Revolution and so on was seen as basically a a resource pool. Well, we treated the the settling of the prairies in the same way. Uh, you know, we had these massive movements of people, and we give them land, and we expect them to produce from it, and so on and so on. So we've got a we've got a very different uh, vision of what the again coming back to the ownership, to the ownership of the of the resources, to the land, and to the the meaning of what a community might be in that. Now, I, I think it's important the way you, you brought up the question of Quebec because that has really, really illustrates for me how these are policy decisions. These are not inherent. These are not built into the economy or whatever. These are decisions that we can end up saying, oh, let's, let's reorganize ourselves a little bit different as if those communities mattered and, and they matter in a broader way than just the economic. And Quebec's rural policy has been a phenomenal development up until the last, you know, until they shut it down. But, but, but it's a great story to illustrate how we could do it differently. What prompted Quebec to shift the way they were seeing the rural regions? Uh, you mean for as as the as the policy came as the policy to came to be? Yeah. Well, okay. Now that's a whole that's a fun area because it opened to a whole bunch of interpretations. I have my own little thing about this. That to me, the the importance of the language and the culture and the religion and so on was was very very high. Has been very high in within Quebec society, and it was therefore. Um, a kind of a, a of an obvious progression, the emergence of Montreal as an economic core, and its periphery, has always been a really interesting contrast. Montreal has been industrial, the 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 periphery has been, to some extent, agricultural, but it would have pockets of manufacturing uh, that were that are quite remarkable. So there was, in these regions, areas of manufacturing and industrial growth that, that kept them alive, that became very important for, for um, the, the, the province in total. Layer over that, the really important role of the church. The Catholic Church was, was very, very adamant about maintaining a particular kind of organization whereby the populations basically were were supporting international corporations and so on. Well, they saw that in, in their interests that preserving these communities, preserving these small towns was really important. When when I lived in Cap Saint Ignace, a small 
community. Uh, we were there in 1980, near the end of the 80s. They, the people would still tell stories about about how if the curé said on a beautiful day, you know, the crops was ready, but it was a Sunday and the curé said, no, you can't go and work in the fields, they wouldn't work in the fields. You know, that there was a, there was, there was a long period of very tight control uh, of the church. Well, then Quebec had the, the Quiet Revolution, uh, where the church was basically removed, the, the state took over education and um, uh, the social welfare system and so on. But it was very easy for the state then to use all of that, that institutional framework of the, of the church to manage the area. So you see the emergence of what are called uh, the MRCs, which were regional organizations which were extremely influential in supporting the rural areas. They were all the old parish and, and group parish uh, institutions. It was, it was just fine, we'll just secularize them. It was extremely effective because these people had experience working together. They knew how to work with their, with their neighbors. They had organizations that allowed them to, to negotiate with the provincial government. So it was not a, they didn't go through what you would find, say, in, you know, if you tried to amalgamate in Saskatchewan, oh, no, we're not going to talk to those people, you know, you, would, you didn't have that to the same extent because the, the, the institutions were there. So you go to the, a rural community, you know, each community has its church and its school and its uh, convent often or, or, and its case populaire, which was a, the financial co-op, basically the Quebec co-op. So all of that infrastructure was there, was just taken over by the state, and and relatively speaking, was was uh, worked very nicely to maintain these these uh, phenomenon, and and the provincial government felt confident in in working with that, and so they they were able to develop this this strategy that not only worked but at the same time protected the the language and the culture and the and the Quebec society but then we entered this age of austerity yes that's right yes yeah. and how why the decision to dismantle something that was so obviously working <laughs> well I, I don't know I mean this is this is where this is where the kind of more recent investigation has has been raising some interesting questions some people say that it's not that much of a shift the, that it's still operating what they've done is they've taken away a lot of the funds and they've laid the, I mean in a sense it was working so well they said all right well you guys you, you're on your own now right unfortunately they what it meant is that they lost a whole network of what are basically rural agents that were associated with the MRCs. So the MRCs now, if they want them, they have to hire them themselves, and they don't have the same pool. Um, so some people argue that this, this is still the next stage of its success, and it's still operating. 
And so that the, the provincial government then has said it's operating well, They're, they can now operate on their own, they don't need the same resources from us and therefore now we'll, we'll take those resources and put them elsewhere. That's one of the arguments that's being made, that it's a kind of a strategic move along. Uh, others are saying, well, you've, you've pulled out of that the very things that help it to operate. Uh, and so it's a disaster and, and they go from there. We won't know for the next little while. It's, it's, it'll be, to me, in terms of why they did it, is it's partly a reflection of the kind of neoliberal approach that has been moving, you know, in various ways and, and has, has certainly been a, a feature of the provincial government now in Quebec. As, you know, it used to be much more, well, it all has a history of social democracy that, that kind of served as a, as a barrier to that or a limitation on it. And that's been, that's been eroded in many ways. So I suppose it's a combination of those kinds of things, but the, the long-term outcome I think will be interesting to see because it, it, it is such a nice example and an unusual example uh, of, of of an organize of a structure or uh, institution that that seemed to be, have been very successful. To me, it's especially fascinating because living in Newfoundland, I can see how a model like that would work very well within the Newfoundland cultural context. When I look at Newfoundland and Labrador, I see this incredibly rich tapestry of language accents cultural expressions, and that alone seems worth supporting. Yes, yeah. What could other provinces learn from the Quebec model about how to structure this policy-wise? Right, and yeah. why don't we experiment more yeah, often? Yeah. Well, I, I, there's a couple of comments I have to that. One is, is the lessons that I see from, from the Quebec uh, situation that are transferable are uh, one sort of recognize what are the institutional conditions that are the, what's the legacy what's the institutional legacy so if you end up not respecting that you're kind of you know doomed to failure because people these legacies are things that are around for a reason if people are comfortable with them if they operate they've learned how to operate they know what the limits are of how, what they can do with or without their neighbors and so on. These legacies are important. And, and sometimes they reflect language. Sometimes they reflect, you know, this is my home. This is my place. This is my music. This is my corner of the world, whatever. So anyway, that's the first thing. Is, is, and, and Quebec had done that big time because they just took over that structure that had been established for hundreds of years for the, with the church. So that's, that's the first thing. The second one is... Whatever you do, give it time. You know, the, the, this was a 20-year thing. It went through four or five different major changes in political structure, and yet it was preserved. Now, what happens is when you, when you design, say, a region, and you say, all right, you, you, you have to work together. Ah, oh, I'm not going to, you know, no way, we've, you know, our rivals for age, or we don't trust them, whatever. 
Well, that's going to take a long time for people to get to the stage that they will trust their neighbors. And particularly around the core element that is required, which is the ability and willingness to compromise. Okay, Alberta is a good example. You, 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 Alberta's approach was a kind of laissez-faire. All right, you guys, speaking to the municipalities, you guys get together, you come up with a plan, and you come to us, and we will approve it or not, um, as long as it's kind of regional-based. And you have a, have a, a, a good objectives or whatever. Okay. So what happens, of course, is all of those regions that are working together well, they're off the mark. They're into the pool. They get the money, right? Fantastic. All of those ones who are still fighting or, you know, their capacity is low or they've just had a big crisis and so on. Well, of course, they're left behind. So what you get is this bifurcation of the conditions in various communities. Well, that's, in the long run, that's not going to be a successful rural policy because you'll have all sorts of these défavorisés, they, they call them. In, in. Well, they, in Quebec, what they've done is they said, yes, if you're in an MRC in a region which has these poor um, capacity communities, we'll give you a little bit of extra money. Okay, So the MRC says, oh, this is, this is good. We have an extra money. Now, the money, there's rules about how it has to be devoted. But, but there's, it means that a, um, a corner that is in trouble is not a liability to them. It becomes an asset. And that they can then work with that in order to bring it up to, to, to speed, right? In, in Alberta, they're lost. Right? So there's no mechanisms there that, that in a sense, uh, encourage a region to pay attention to its areas like this. So that's another one, is take the time. You know, give it some time. Give it the 10 or the 20 years that is necessary for people to say, all right, you, you can have the school this time. But we get the hospital when it comes, okay? Well, nobody's going to make a deal with that like that if in two years there's going to be a changeover in government and the whole thing. You have to be able to respect deals like that. Those are big deals, right? Living in a, in a small town, you have to have a 10-year experience of working with those people before you start to get to the point where, oh, well, okay, I guess if we make a deal, they'll come through, right? We're talking decades here. Quebec is not the only Canadian example of how we could do things better. British Columbia and the First Nations throughout northern regions and territories of Canada provide another model of regional rural governance that is based on a different set of values. It is a model Bill Reimer thinks the rest of the country could learn from. I think what, one of the areas that is really will be fun to watch is BC. Because what is happening in, B, in, in most of Canada, for First Nations, we signed treaties. But in BC, for the most part, there were no treaties signed. This started to open up all sorts of opportunities for negotiating uh, deals about self-governance and about land and control over the environment and everything. Well, in BC, 
and the Yukon and so on. You have these fantastic experiments in construction of local governments because all of these various groups who are now in the courts and just going through that process are all are all actually in good shape in terms of knowing what to watch out for. They they are they're talking to the James Bay Cree and they're talking to the to the other groups and saying how did that work for you? And how what do we have to watch out for? So I went up to um, uh, the Yukon, Carcross Tagish, which is a, it's a group that straddles three, you know, BC and, and Yukon. <laughs> they got, so they got federal government involved. Great. But they did negotiate self-government. So they end up saying, all right, what do we do? Well, we don't want the way it was, it's been done so far. We know that. So we have to come up almost with a blank slate. Well, what do we start with? We start with our family policy because we think the family is the most important element in our culture. Okay, how do we deal with that? Well, what do we trust? Well, we trust the stories. So they spend a year or two collecting stories about themselves, talking to the elders, uh, you know, telling legends, so on. Then they spend another year looking those over and identifying what they think was most important about it. So I go to um, their their band council office and there there's a big wall with great big sticky tape things, eight and a half by 11 with words like courage and and honor and love. And, and they're, they're up there pulling these things off the wall and reorganizing them into groups to try and identify what are the essential qualities. So they say, all right, they hire some graduate student from U of A to come over a political science and they say, write this up in a language that governments will accept. So he goes away and he writes it up in bylaws and whatever, brings it back and then spend another year poking around and no, this doesn't sound right and revising it and so on. So anyway, so they eventually get their family policy document together. It's a fantastic document. The first third of it is a bunch of stories. The, the next, they get into all of these kind of bylaws. And then when they get that thing all together, they construct a dance. So I'm thinking like, wow, what a rich environment for looking at alternate ways to govern. And I think we can learn a tremendous amount from those kinds of things. They... they uh, they finished their family policy, then I think they're going to environment because the land is important to them. And, and they, so I was asking the, one of the elders, how, how long do you think it's going to take to get your stuff together? He says, well, he says, uh, it took about seven generations to get into this mess. So if we get out in seven generations, we're doing really well. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, okay, now there's a perspective that... <laughs> Seems uh, pretty good. <laughs> it really puts into perspective the four-year election cycle. That's it. That's exactly, exactly, exactly. It was just wonderful. So anyway, so I think that's another area, you know, if we're sort of talking about areas in Canada that are worthwhile lear seeing as, as things we can learn from, that, that's a pretty exciting one for to me. Accepting that finding new ways of doing things takes time is only one part of the rural development equation. The second part is recognizing 
that regional collaboration is the best tool we have at the moment for addressing problems that are beyond the means of any one community. Many of these communities are not able to operate on their own. They don't have the critical mass for services. They don't have the, you know, under the current way in which we view these things, they don't have the critical mass for services. They don't have necessarily the capacity or the breadth of capacity that you can't have, you know, a brain surgeon in every community, right? So they're going to have to figure out a way to collaborate at least on a regional basis. And regions are pretty good, those sub-provincial regions, because they're often tied to asset packages that are quite different than other regions because of climate, because of terrain, because of, of the transportation structure and so on. You have to think about collaboration from a community development point of view, not simply as one community. It, it, it has to be region. Okay, so how do you set up a structure whereby people can get together and they may be pissed off, you know, they may be annoyed at one another, but that they, they maybe even have to get together, but it's around the same table that they, they then put on the table what the issues are and that they have enough time to get beyond the complaints I mean, it just takes time. You, do, you just need to have some vetting time and you need to have some complaining and, and all that stuff. You need to test each other and so on. To create a, a structure that allows that to happen, I think that becomes very important. Who gets together? Well, it has to be the communities. And by that, I mean not just the mayor and the council, but I mean the corporations that are there. They... Uh, voluntary associations, really important, the environmental groups or whatever, the people who are involved in education and, and uh, medicine and, and so on. These things are sectoral, but they need to, they need to have a place to talk in, in that region. To me, that's who to, who to get there as, as wide a variety of people, of Im, important stakeholders as, as possible. And then given enough resources so that it's not just talk, that you can actually end up saying, all right, well, where do we allocate this? We do need some help in terms of maybe learning how, about how to you know, build a co-op or, or we need help in trying to figure out how to deal with, uh, you know, energy issues or, or water or sewage or, you know, all those things that are necessary to make life okay. You get these players together. Yeah. Who gets them together? Who has that responsibility to initiate? Oh, yeah. I think that's clear in the Canadian structure. It's a provincial government. Because the provincial government has a responsibility for municipalities, they have a responsibility for natural resources and development and so on. So to me, that's clearly a provincial uh, responsibility. That doesn't mean that federal can't play a part. And, and in fact, we, we've got some, some good evidence in the past about how important the federal government has, has been. For example, the you know, the, the settlement of the Canadian prairies, you know, that, that, that whole immigration issue is, is obviously needing some important federal contributions. The idea of the rural secretariat, you know, it's for, for a period of time there where the federal government said, 
well, look, we, we do have an uh, uh, inequality issue here. And, and that's a legitimate concern for us on a national level. And so what we'll do is we'll set up these, they had regional uh, bodies that would help uh, in order to sort of deal with those. So there's, a pla there's certainly a place for the federal government, but legislatively, and uh, it's, it's, a provincial, it's a provincial issue. So what's preventing us from doing this better? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, why don't people just do do, do what I'm saying? This yeah, exactly. what I, yeah, right. exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> makes sense. To there's me. A, yeah, there's an, there's an old <laughs> an old question. Yeah. Well, there's lots of. I mean, I I go back to where the legacy of our policy is. I mean, we have an economy that is tied to commodity production. We we. Are, are not, in a sense, primarily focused on feeding ourselves in that direct fashion. We're interested in shipping off the stuff and using the proceeds to buy. So it means that we're very, very vulnerable to international conditions. I mean, look at the price of oil. You know, So it's, it's not of our making that the, the price of oil goes up or down, uh, but we're we certainly feel the effects. Same thing with respect to grain, same thing with respect to lumber and fish and so on and so forth. Okay, so, so that's a policy and those are consequences from it. We say, all right, we, we'll put up with all the ups and downs of the world economy uh, because we get big benefits when it's booming and we kind of forget about the, the downtime, right? We are just seeing the closing of the window on rural in the, in the sense that up until, say, my parents' generation, most of the people in Canada had some rural experience. They were either living in rural or they had moved to the urban, but they had rural roots. They had a lot of connections with rural. There was a good level of first-hand knowledge of what that was about. We're certainly now in a position where the, the powers that be, which are largely urban, just don't know about rural. And, and the, the, the sense of what life is like there, or could be like there, uh, is just not there, you know, in terms of, of their, their vision. And so then we have the, the kind of commodity treadmill that we're on we have the this dem demographic things i think you know those those are the in my mind those are things that are really most important in terms of driving these um i would say a kind of a, either an insensitivity or a, a misdirected sensitivity about the importance and the nature of what rural is about and what rural life is about and why you would think that, that some attention should be given to that. I, 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 I think it's a no-brainer, you know, in the sense that, you, that the, the, the fate of urban areas in Canada depends as much on rural as vice versa. You know, often they're, they're kind of seen in competition. I don't. We're, we're totally interdependent in terms of rural and urban. We just don't see that buying our iPods means that we have to, you know, put more fertilizer on the, in, on the ground in order to produce uh, 
adequate amount of grain or whatever. We don't see that connection because it's so indirect. By and large, as I mentioned, the, the power is urban and the, the urban problems are significant. You know, it's not... So they're going to draw the attention and the resources. So they're going to, they, the rural places are going to have to figure out a way to either do it themselves or form alliances with urban groups in very strategic fashion, you know, like, like say, all right, how about if we do a farm, uh, you know, an urban farm arrangement or we do direct marketing or we end up, you know, that there's a whole bunch of opportunities where rural areas can form alliances with urban areas and, and improve both as a result. Those, that's the kind of thinking I think that, that needs to be, uh, needs to be considered. If you were at the beginning of your academic career, oh yeah, <laughs> what I, what would you be looking at? <laughs> oh goodness! Well, you, you see, the nice thing after sort of going through all this stuff is that I would I would probably be wanting to to look at what I'm looking at now, you know. I started off looking at the impacts of mechanization on on farm, on families. Well, it soon became apparent to me is that that it wasn't just an impact on families, it was an impact on communities. I was interested in poverty and stuff like that. Well, then, as I went through that, I realized, well, it's not just a community thing, it's a regional thing, you know, so that each of these, I, you know, I mean, it's, it can be seen as just me getting smarter or, or you know, realizing what other people know already, but that, that kind of a trajectory brings me to the point now where I'm saying, all right, well, I would really be in. I am interested, for example, in in how First Nations construct their their governance. What 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 is it? What other models could we have for how people get things done? Which is basically what governance is about. And how can we then learn from that uh, to to look at where there are challenges and how we might th reconfigure things along those lines? So these these points that I'm raising about the the excitement of looking at Aboriginal Indigenous peoples designing their governance. The question, for example, of the impact of, of alternate forms of energy, wind and so on, those kinds of things to me seem really interesting from a rural point of view because to, to, to envisage a situation where a rural community or a region might generate its own power. Those kinds of things, I, I would be very interested in, in looking at how these become assets for local communities and regions. I'm fortunate in that, that as an academic, I can basically poke around whatever I want, right? I get in touch with all sorts of people that in turn tell me the stories and get me in touch with with research and results that I could never have dreamed of, that are really, you know, uh, exciting in terms of, of, of what one can expect. And, and that's, that's uh, been pretty consistent throughout, is that I can pretty, you know, 
confidently sort of go into a kind of a new context and say, I bet I'll learn something from this. And, and it, it's been true. I mean, that certainly keeps me going. It's fun. Yeah. That was my conversation with Bill Reimer, a retired sociologist from Concordia University in Montreal. He has spent more than 40 years trying to understand rural regions in Canada and abroad. Today, he is the director of Rural Policy Learning Commons International Partnership, one of the partners on this show. My name is Boyan Fierst, and I'm the host of Rural Roots. My day job is at the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's. This show is produced in collaboration with the Harris Center, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and the Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership, bringing together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. Rural Roots is supported through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Connection Grant. I have provided some additional resources to Dr. Reimer's work on our website, ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. If you have any questions about the show, you can email me from the website. From there, you can follow me on Twitter and find us on Facebook, and you can subscribe to the podcast. If you listen to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, let them know if you liked this episode. If you listened to the podcast version of the show, feel free to encourage your local radio station to broadcast any of the episodes. The show is available to community campus radio stations free of charge. It is also available through the National Community and Campus Radio Association Program Exchange. That's all for today. You just listened to Rural Roots, a show that asks what is rural in the 21st century. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us next week. For that episode, our guest is going to come from a bit further away. Philomena Dalima is a scholar based at the University of Highlands and Islands in Scotland, and she is very interested in immigration in rural areas. Don't miss it. To subscribe to the podcast, visit ruralrootspodcasts.com. Again, that's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. Cheers. Cheers.